Let me ask you a question that we asked last week and, and will help us as we make our way into the text this week. Um, when history looks back uh, at Redemption Hill Church, when eternal history looks back at the life of God's people in, in this place and, and all that God does in the years and generations to come through this place, uh, what will be said about us? When history looks back at God's people in, in this place at, at this time and for generations to come, what will be said about us? What will we be known for? And not so much the, the deeds that God may do by his grace through our people, but what in character, what in spirit, uh, what in disposition, what will we be characterized by and what will history look back and, and, and will we be known for? Uh, that's one of the questions we posed last week. And it, it comes up, and it comes up again, and it will continue to come up again as we take our time walking through the book of Acts because we've been looking at the development of, of really what, what we can say is the first New Testament church, the, the development of, of God's people and the church beginning to gather. And, and as we've seen God work mightily in the life of this young church, much like this one in a lot of ways, and we've seen God pour out his spirit upon this church and, and graciously work through this church, and this church continue to grow and continue to multiply along with all the stories that we get so captured by when we look at this church. Uh, what we've noticed the last few weeks uh, are some things that Luke, the writer of Acts, begins to tell us about this people. Not so much what God does through these people, as great as that is, and as enamored as we get with all of those things, but we've taken our time to look really closely at what Luke says about these people. What really characterized these people. As history looks back at, at this early church, centuries removed from this time, we see a little bit more about what makes these people who they are. And, and just to kind of catch you up, what we've seen is that in, in this little church, in this community that, that sprung up from the early followers of Jesus, and now at this point in our story, as we look at Acts chapter 6, probably numbers thousands, we've seen Luke, in telling the story of this church, make special effort to note that a particular type of unity had grown up amongst these people. A particular type of, of fellowship had grown up amongst these people. A unity and a fellowship that was marked, we talked about, by a freedom. A freedom from the fears of, of other people's opinions and perceptions. There was a, a special kind of thing that man couldn't produce that was being evident in the lives of these people. And along with that particular unity that came, uh, so did a generosity. A particular type of grace-driven generosity bubbled up in the lives of these people. And we saw in Acts chapter 4 that, that they were considering the needs of others above their own needs. And, and Luke records historically that there wasn't a needy person among them. For as many had houses or lands, they would sell them to see that the needs of others were met. We saw a, a particular type of grace-driven generosity come up in these people that was marked by a freedom from the love of stuff. A freedom from the entitlement of stuff that so easily entangles us. And along with that particular unity and along with that particular type of generosity came a power and effectiveness in their witness. The very thing that God had declared that they would become, that he would make them, and the very thing that he would call them to go and be, not only in Jerusalem, but to the ends of the earth, a, a witness to the truthfulness and the power of the story of the person of Jesus. We see in, in just the early parts of Acts that along with those things came a particular power and effectiveness to their witness as they started out with 12 and a 120 and upwards of now of almost 10,000. So not only were they unified and fellowship and driven by the grace of God and displaying a particular generosity amongst each other, and 
effective in their witness, in their calling as God's people. But as we began to see even last week, these were a people that were marked by a particular type of obedience. An obedience that was, that was radical in nature. An obedience that wasn't determined by circumstance. I mean, these were people who were obedient to the will and to the word of God, regardless of the circumstances they found themselves in. They were free from the fear of what may happen if they were to cross someone or someone else or do something that would displease someone else but would cause them to disobey the word of God or the will of God. What a freedom. I mean, freedom from the fear of people's opinions, freedom from the fear of the, the love of stuff, of not having what you think is entitled to you. Free. Free to obey. Free from fear. And not only were they obedient in this way, unified and generous and powerful and effective and marked by this radical obedience regardless of circumstances, but we saw last week that they were a people marked by a particular type of joy. Joy in the face of suffering and persecution. Free from the fear of what may happen because they were certain in who God was for them in Jesus. So amongst all the stories that we've seen about this church and amongst all the the good things that we've seen about this church and amongst all the struggles that we've seen already start to surface in this church, what Luke has drawn our attention to, if we slow down and pay particular attention, is fruit that has grown and begun to blossom in the lives of God's people individually and then as a church. Fruit that comes not from particular behaviors or, or patterns of things that they follow, but fruit that comes from the roots of having believed the gospel deeply. Fruit that comes from having a particular type of trust and belief in who God is for us in Jesus. He even recorded that of all these people, all the numbers, he said in Acts chapter 4, they all believed. All the things we've seen about this church, the unity, the generosity, the effectiveness, the obedience, the joy, what we'll see today is just fruit that comes from the roots of the gospel, digging down deeper and deeper into the soil of their souls. It's the gospel. It's a satisfaction with who God is for us in Jesus that's marked these people, that has produced these types of things in their life. This is what we've been looking at, and it's this type of fruit that's been produced in these people that causes them to stand before the the religious and political leaders of the day and be accused and found guilty of having filled the entire city with the teaching of the gospel. What an accusation. We talked about that last week as we talked about some of the things that we hope to be a part of in, in our generation and in this city that maybe one day history would look back and some of these characteristics, I pray all of them, would be found in great measure in the life of our church. But may we also be found accused and staying guilty of having been a part of filling the entire city with the teaching of the gospel. That's what we've seen so far as we've looked at this people in the first part of the book of Acts, and we're going to continue on with that this morning. But it won't be, it hasn't been, and it won't be smooth sailing for this church or for our church. We've said, I've quoted almost weekly, John Stott, who, who reminds us as we look at this early church, it wasn't all romance and righteousness. What we've seen so far is as God continues to work in and through this church, there is an enemy. There is one who opposes the glory of God and the purposes of God. And as God has worked through this church, Satan has, tempted, has attempted to work against this church in a number of means. 
And there's a particular pattern that Luke observes for us. I just want you to see it because I, I want to help you be able to read this book as you go home and, and read Acts. I want you to see the story as it unfolds. As, as God moves mightily in this church, Satan begins to bring opposition against this church from the outside. And we looked at that originally with the, the Pharisees and the, and the civil leaders, but more people ended up getting saved. And so if that didn't work, he, he turned to the inside move. If he couldn't crush him from the outside, we're going to destroy him from the inside. And we looked at the deception internally from the story of Ananias and Sapphira, but far from destroying this new church, it continued to produce more and more people being transformed by the glory of God in Jesus. So if he couldn't get him from the outside and he couldn't get him from the inside, he's going to come back around, he's going to try the outside again. And we saw last week how he brought more external pressure on this church from the religious and the civil leaders as the gospel would go forward and people were being saved and God was moving mightily in, in miracles and healings. They were, they were threatened and they began to persecute again from the outside. But again, we saw not only the fruit of these gospel roots in this church, but we saw that more and more people kept getting saved. And so, again, he's going to try one more time. If I can't get him from the outside and I, I lost on the inside, let me, let me go back in one more time. And what we're going to see in our our story this morning in Acts chapter 6 is we're going to see Satan begin to sow the seeds of, of dissension and gossip because if he can't crush from the outside and he can't crush from the inside, maybe we can divide the people amongst themselves. And maybe we can set brother against brother. And maybe if we can divide them, then we can conquer them. So that's what we're going to see beginning to happen in this church. We're going to see what God does in the life of this church, but we're also going to see some more of the fruit that's being produced in this church. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into Acts chapter 6, and we'll read the story, I'll talk through the story, and then we'll, we'll settle in on a few things. Sound good? All right, rousing agreement. Um, <laughs> let me pray. Father, thank you for this time. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together, uh, Lord, as your people. And I ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit continue to work in every heart and soul here that you have brought here. Uh, and you enable us and continue to work in us a surrender to your word. Uh, may we find your word examining our hearts this morning. Lord, we, we want to see our hearts individually, all of us, and our heart collectively as a people transformed to reflect the character of our Savior. So, Lord, please do that this morning through the time that we have, through your word uh, and the very weak words that may come out of my mouth. Uh, use them to do what only you can do in our souls. We ask this, Lord, in the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 6. I'm going to sip some coffee and then we're, we're going to read. Acts chapter 6, start in verse 1. Uh, we're going to get the lay of the land in the story. And then there's a few things I want us to see as we kind of wrap things up. So we're going to do a lot of just working through the story this morning, which is fun for me. Um, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, the days we've been looking at, the growth, development, uh, prosperity, and struggle of this early church, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So here, here's the problem. He's going to give it to you right up front. Uh, a division has begun to spring up in the life of this church. Uh, a little bit of a struggle amongst people has started to grow. And I want you to see a couple of things about what Luke says about this division because I want you to, to be able to see that it's not so different. It's not so far removed from some of the things that, that we may struggle with. But the first thing I want you to notice is it was really an intelligent strategy of the enemy to begin to sow the seeds of division in the place where he did. 
I mean, if there was anything in this particular time that would raise the temperature of this church, it would be the neglect of the widows. He picked a very sensitive and very um, unique group to deal with. You see, it would be a horrible thing. It would be a horrible thing as a leader in this church or as a participant or person in this church community, community to be accused and found guilty of having neglected widows. Widows were a particular group in this time period. You see, when you were widowed in this time, unless you had a son or a family to care for you, there was very little chance that you were ever going to get remarried. There was very little chance that you were ever going to find any way to make enough money to support yourself. There was no state welfare. There were no social programs to take care of them. They were some of the most defenseless people in this community. And so to be found guilty of having, neglecting, having neglected the widows, and that was bound to get somebody in the church hot. The temperature was going to, to rise. They were in a difficult position. Now, this isn't a unique struggle and a unique challenge to this New Testament church. If we were to take the time to go backwards into the Old Testament and the, and the story of God in the Old Testament that leads us to where we are, we'll see that God has always had a particular care for those who were the most defenseless. We've seen that God always had a particular care for the widows and the orphans. See, back in Deuteronomy, God delivered to Moses a, an edict or a law that he was to confer to the people that they were to take particular care. Particular love was to be shown to the widows and to the orphans. Part of how they were to set up their system of care as a community was to take particular need to those who could not care for themselves. And they set up a, a way and a system in the life of the Jewish people to care for the widows and to care for the orphans. That's why if you think about the story of, of Ruth and, and Naomi, that's why when they left Moab and went back to Bethlehem, they could go back with confidence knowing that their people were there and that amongst the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people there in the presence of a synagogue, there was a way that they could be cared for. There was a way that at least their most basic needs can be met. So this care for the orphan or this care in particular here for the widow is not something that just sprang up out of thin air in the life of this church. This was an ethic and a reality that was woven deeply into the lives of God's people. And so here they stand now on the backside of having been of tasted, tasting the grace of God poured out on them and this church coming. They're standing before their people having been accused now as leaders of neglecting those who God has paid special concern for since the beginning of his care for his people. It's a precarious position that the apostles and this church find themselves in. It, it, it unfortunately is not the exact situation that we typically find producing this type of dissension in the life of the church today. Unfortunately, we have probably in the last 50 to 75 years uh, not paid as much attention to the least of these, as we should. But this is the type of dissension and the type of struggle that many of you, if you have a church background, have probably tasted before in a place that you've been that usually surrounds music or surrounds kids' spaces. Somebody's being neglected. Somebody's not being taken care of. Something isn't being met. A particular need isn't being cared for. I wish it was an accusation that Everything else was fine, but we weren't caring for the least of these. But typically when these types of things arrive in the church today, it's centered around something 
entirely different. But what's happening is not all too unfamiliar to us. And, and something else I, I want you to see. I, I don't know that I ever noticed this before I, I, I began studying uh, Acts for this series, but do you notice what the actual complaint is? I mean, have you ever just read this and noticed what the actual complaint here is? Listen, Luke said, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Do you hear what he just said right there? The complaint wasn't, hey, there are some people over here who aren't getting the food that they need. I mean, that was just part of the complaint. The complaint was, hey, we're angry at you. This, this problem, this failure to provide for these widows had become personal now. It had ceased being an administrative and organizational problem. It had now become personal. And this group of people now has a problem with this group of people. It just happens to kind of be surrounded by this issue of people who weren't getting the food that they felt like they needed. See, a problem has now become personal. What was probably a molehill, Satan has now sown the seeds of dissension and mistrust and produced a mountain. The problem has gotten personal. You see, the enemy is the father of lies and deception and division. And isn't it interesting that this is the very thing that, if we're honest, begins to happen in our own life when we think about the things that we struggle with in relation to each other in our relationships and we feel scorned or shunned or we have a problem with somebody else. And we walk down the hall and pass each other and the shoulder seems a little cold, the smile doesn't come that quickly and the glance doesn't come it doesn't take long before in our mind and in our heart that natural occurrence has now become personal you know when the call or the email doesn't get returned quite as quickly as we wanted gone is the benefit of the doubt that maybe something was going on you know maybe there was a reason this happened now it's become personal there's something about me that you are no longer caring for And division begins to arise. Gone is the grace. Gone is the benefit of the doubt. What begins to rise up in our heart is, how dare they? Who are they to snub me like that? I mean, who do they think they are? Are they really that busy? They can't just pick up the phone and call me right back? I know they sent me straight to voicemail. I know he looks at his phone every time he answers it to see who's calling. All of a sudden, it's personal. Gone is the benefit of the doubt. Now, now notice that it actually gets a little worse here. I'm making light of how it happens in, in our lives and in these little instances. But here, there's a different dynamic going on. This is getting racist. There is a, an ethnic tension that's beginning to develop here. There's, a, there's an ethnic issue that's rising. This is a people looking at another people and saying, you are disregarding our presence and you're disregarding our needs. You are considering yourself on the inside and looking at us as though we're on the outside. There's an ethnic tension, an ethnic dimension to this, and that cuts deeper than any cold shoulder we we get in a hallway. Any missed email and phone call that begins to be taken so personally. This is a sense of, this place is for us. This place is to serve our needs. What's beginning to happen is the sense of feeling like you, the rest of you, Hellenists, you're not welcome here. Gone is the benefit of the doubt. 
gone is the benefit of the doubt relating to the complexity that the apostles and those who were serving with them faced when in a matter of months, what was 120 has turned into 10,000. Gone was the complexity of realizing that the system that had been instituted since the Old Testament where where the portions were given out to the widows of the synagogue was now no longer available because now these people were believers in Jesus. They couldn't just return to the synagogue to see the needs met for the widows in the city who had become Christians. That wasn't a place of welcome for them in that way anymore. So the complexity of what the 12 had to face when looking at 10,000 and facing the widows that had come and had been transformed by the message of the gospel but still needed their, their, their tangible needs met, gone was the grace that looked at that complexity and said, wow, that must be difficult. Well, look, all the people are selling their stuff and giving them the money. What's so hard about this? That's what was beginning to build. And not only what's so hard about all this, but they must like these people better than these people. Gone was the benefit of the doubt when thinking, instead of being able to use the synagogue to see this met equitably, we've got to figure out a way to get all of these these resources that are being given to us turned into food. Who's going to buy that? Who's going to buy the food? Just think about it. All the money's being given to them, but somebody's going to go buy the food. Where are they going to put it? Where are they going to keep it? And how are they going to work through this system of homes and and groups that are springing up throughout Jerusalem and in the, the suburbs of Jerusalem where all these people live? How are they going to get what's needed to all those places in a way that's fair and equitable and timely? Gone is the benefit of the doubt in its place in the seeds and now the fruit of dissension and mistrust and, and gossip. And I'll just say this as, as a sidebar. Now we, we, we have been here. Those of you who have been around for a while may, may know some of the stories. Those of you who are relatively new, we haven't really had to deal with this quite this way in a while, but we've been here. You know, as God has continued to grow this place, much like this church, just in almost, what is almost three years, he has brought at different times and in different ways people from different ethnic backgrounds, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, and there have been times when what we have done has been used against us And we have been charged with the accusation of being a place for these people and not these people. It happens. And what I want you to know is that we are, the best of our ability, ruthlessly aware of how easy this type of dissension is to arise in the life of a local church. How many things we do can inadvertently be used to communicate this type of thing? I mean, something as innocuous to you and I as language. We happen to all speak the same language. But what about those who come in who don't share this same language? What about those who, who want to grow in their taste and awareness for the gospel of grace, but where English is not their primary language? They come into this place, and all we do is speak English. And we make no preparation or expectation for them, and when they arrive, we do nothing to help transform them and, and engage them. It's a place that's for us and not them, and that's a big example. But things like music and things uh, like the language we use when we talk and when we preach, it, it can easily divide people. And we're aware of all these things, and, and we do the best that we can to, to be aware of it and to try to always, to always think in a mission-minded way, but we've been here, and those of you who've been around churches, you, you've been there. You, you've experienced these types of things, and we want to do all that we can do to let everyone that God brings in this place not feel like an outsider simply by the way we do the things that we do. So I want you to, to know that, that we're aware of how easy this is, and how easy the enemy can get a foothold in the hearts and and minds of God's people. 
Let's keep going. So Satan has sown the, the seeds here, the favoritism, the gossip, uh, the dissension, the mistrust, and those seeds have now started to grow, and they're threatening to choke out the fruit of the gospel that we've been looking at, that we see is evident in the life of this church community. Divide and conquer is what he's after. So how is the church, and in particular the church's leaders, how are they, how are they going to respond to this? I mean, how are they going to deal with this? Do you stick your fingers in your ear? Do you, do you just ignore it? Just hope it'll all go away? Do you just hope somebody else will, will deal with it? What do they do? Uh, keep reading. Verse 2, that's all. Verse 1. Verse 2. And so the 12, he's talking about the apostles, and the apostles at this time in the life of the church are serving as the de facto elders because they have not appointed elders in the life of the church in Jerusalem quite yet. We'll see that down the road a bit. So the apostles are serving as the elders of the church. They summon the full number of the disciples. So the apostles, the elders, face the problem, and they get everybody in. They call a meeting. And as tempted as I am to talk about church government, that is not the point of this passage. I mean, if you've been in church for any period of time, we'll talk about this later probably if we get to it. Uh, This text is only, only ever preached, I should say, normally ever preached in church in relation to church government. And that is really not the point of the passage at all. So I won't digress but I'm tempted. They called a meeting. And they brought everybody in. And they said, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word, the word of God, to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that room? I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have been in that meeting? They called the full number of the disciples in. These are the people who are feeling offended, and these are the people who are creating the offense. And these are the people who are ignorant of it all. And they're all in there. And if you've been around church, you've been in those meetings. Something's going on, and a group of people are hurt over here, and a group of people cause the hurt, and there's a whole group of people who don't know what's going on. And they're just happy to be there and be a part. And they call everybody in. And here's what they say. This is, this is what we're going to do. I would have loved to have been a fly just to see how they dealt with this. I would have wanted to know what apostle spoke. I mean, which one stood up and said something? Who, who said what he's about to say? Because we'll see in a second, this is not something that most men would stand up and say in this environment. They stood the chance of getting shot for what they say. And I want to know who said it. My guess is Peter, because he's presumptuous. But if they were smart, it was probably John. John has a way with words and people. So I don't know. I would have loved to have been there. Sorry, that's just my sidebar. I want you to read this stuff. When you read the Bible, though, think about it. What would it have been like to have gotten in this place? So they call a, they call a meeting, and everybody's there. And, and I want you to notice something when they did this. There, there's a couple of things that, that I love about the apostles in this process. You see, there's two things that they recognize that were at stake here. And things that we would naturally just pass right over. I mean, things in my own life, when I think about this church and the responsibility that God has has given us in leading this church, when things have arisen, I know that the things that are at stake ultimately in dealing with what's come up are not the things that I pay the most attention to, but it's what they did. You see, they, they called this meeting to deal with this problem because they understood that there were deeper matters at stake here than just people getting food. They understood, one, that the corporate witness of the church... The corporate witness of the glory of God was at stake. 
This wasn't a matter of just some people getting food and other people not getting food. They understood what Jesus had said, and I'll read it to you, John 13. He said, a new commandment, Jesus said, that I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And listen to this. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so dissension is rising, and, and people are beginning to, to, to conflict, and, and brother is being set against brother, and there's a display of a lack of love, and the apostles call this meeting because better than I, they understood that what's at stake wasn't just people eating, but the corporate witness of God's people was at stake. It was through the life of the church, Paul would later say in the book of Ephesians, that the glory of God would be made known not only on earth, but to powers and principalities in the heavenlies. Our life together, the way we love together, the way we live together is a corporate eternal display of the glory and the value and the worth of God. And they understood that that was at stake in this, in this issue. So they got to deal with it. And second to that, they understood, which is probably where I'm quicker to go, that the ministry of the word was at stake. They understood that the responsibility that they had been given to proclaim and declare the gospel to teach and to apply the message of God's grace poured out upon sinners was at stake. Because if they were to deal with this problem in the way that most of us would respond to this problem, what they were called by God to give their lives and their attention to would be set aside. And we'll see in a minute, it would be an easy thing to do. It would be an easy thing to do that. But instead, they understood the role of the word and the message of the gospel. They understood what we've said over the past few weeks, that it's only the gospel, not the miracles that God produces in the lives of, of his people, as great as they are. They don't save anyone. It's only the message of the gospel, proclaimed and applied in the power of God's spirit that transforms the hearts of men and women. What God does through his people then bears witness to that message. And they knew that that message that ministry, that proclaiming and preaching of the word was at stake in how they dealt with this problem. This is why they get the people together. But I want you to be human. How, how difficult must it have been for them to do what they did? I mean, how difficult would it be to stand up in front of these people that you loved, that you give yourself to, that you sacrifice for, and you would respect and understand and even acknowledge the struggle that's going on and the needs that aren't being met and to stand up and say, it's not right for me to do it. They would have been loved. Think about how the people would have loved them if they stood up and said, here's what we're gonna do. Twelve of us, we got it. I understand that a mistake's been made here and this has been neglected here. Here's how we're gonna handle it. We're gonna split it up and we're gonna go figure this out. And we're, They would have been loved by the people that people would have seen them as such great shepherds, such great pastoral care poured out through the elders, through the twelve. They would have been loved. No one wants to think of themselves or be seen by other people as above something. I mean, do you hear what, what's going on here? For them to say it's not right for us to neglect the very thing God has called us to poses the temptation for other people to look at them and say, you think you're above doing this other stuff. Really? Is that, who, is that who you think you are? Are you better than us? Are, are, really? You're not willing to wait on tables? You're not willing to serve the needs of these widows who can't take care for themselves? Jesus himself bent down and washed the feet of his disciples, and you won't even serve the widows? So you think you're better than Jesus now? Really? 
Peter. What was that story about you when he was getting ready to be crucified? What'd you do? Oh, yeah, you ran off. Right. Now a problem's coming up, and look, you, you're not going to deal with it. You, you get the temptation that they could have succumbed to? The pressure? No one wants to be seen as superior, above doing something else. No one wants to see that, feel that accusation and stand under the weight of that accusation. But an equal temptation was just the other way. They could stand there and say, you know what, we got it. It's actually going to be done better if we just handle it. The rest of you, you've already failed. Already. Obviously, look. Now these people don't like each other. We've got to deal with that pastorally now. Got another thousand hours of counseling for these two people simply because you guys couldn't do it right. All you had to do was get them bread. Okay, we'll got it. We got it. We'll work it out. We'll figure it out. It's going to be better if we do it anyway. No, praise God, though, as they recognize what was at stake in the corporate and public display of God's glory and the ministry of God's word to God's people and to the nations. They exercised in a humility, a humility that, to my own shame, more often than not, I, I don't display. They recognized that they couldn't do it. And God hadn't called them to be the hero and wear the cape and figure everything out. They recognized what was at stake and what was at priorities and that they couldn't do it and they didn't feel that they needed to be the hero in the circumstance. And praise God for the humility that was born from those same roots that would produce the other things we looked at. And, and here's what happens. It's not right, they said, that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. Therefore, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, that we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. If you've ever been in a church meeting where that could be said. I mean, these guys stood the chance of being stoned by the people for what they said. I mean, you've got to feel the weight of that. But the people recognized what was at stake. The people recognized that at stake was the corporate witness of the church and the ministry of the word. And what the apostles said in not so pastoral a way. I mean, it wasn't like they couched this thing in a bunch of niceties and they just said, it isn't right if we do this. It's just not right, so here's what has to happen. And it pleased. They didn't just agree. It pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now the ministry of, of the word that was at stake, what was at stake for being deluded, what was at stake for being choked out, what was at stake for being diminished was now enhanced. Gossip, dissension, it didn't increase. The word of God began to increase. And more and more people became believers, even the priests those who had been bringing them in earlier in the chapters, accusing them and trying to disrupt what God was doing here. Now, because of this, the ministry of the word was increasing, and even the priests were being added to the number. Now, here's what we've got to talk. This, this is the story. This is the landscape. Here, here's what we've got to talk about, because the reality of it is 
we're in a situation that's not all that different in this world. I mean, times change, smells change, scenery changes, technology changes, but people and sin don't change. And the gospel doesn't change. And we're a church in many ways somewhat like this early church, a, a new church that has been established and has been growing. Now we haven't added thousands and ten thousands and hundreds of thousands uh, because you don't have Peter preaching the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, you've got me. But three years ago on January 20th, when we had the first kind of informational gathering about this church, there were 51 adults and like 25 kids, and half of those adults were family and well-wishers from another church in Charlottesville. And regularly outside of the holiday season now, in the fall, there were upwards of 300 adults and more kids back there. And we'll hit that three-year mark at the end of January. So people have been coming, lives have been changing, the church has been growing, and that growth has produced the need and the necessity for other things to change. But along with those people coming have come people from different ethnicities and different socioeconomic backgrounds and different church experiences and different expectations of what the church should be and what the people should be and how the church should do this and how the church shouldn't do that. And people who have no church background, praise God for that because they don't come with those expectations. They don't come with that baggage and they taste the grace of God and, and love what God's doing in their life and we get to teach them what the Bible says and not unpack all the knots. But those kinds of things begin to grow and begin to develop and the same things pop up here as they do in the church then. We're not that different. And so what I want us to see this morning as we kind of pull a couple of things out of this story is along the lines of the same things we've looked at the last few weeks. I want us to see some of the fruit that the gospel going deep into the lives of these people have produced in this community that we see as the pressure and the struggle has been applied to them. So the first thing I want us to see is as the gospel has taken root in their souls and it's going deeper and deeper and deeper into their soul and their eyes, as we said last week, have been fixed firmly on who Jesus is. The fruit of balance. Balance has begun to grow in this community. And this is one of the most neglected <laughs> realities and necessities in the lives of God's people. But balance has begun to grow. And, and the first thing you see, and the way you see it here is, this was a, a community, not only of leaders, but of people who found a way and expressed the reality of a balance between the ministry of the word and the ministry of deed. And that's a difficult balance to live in and to express, and, and they did it brilliantly. You see, it was this early church that started here in Jerusalem and spread throughout the Roman Empire that got the reputation and became known for caring not only for their own people, but for the needs of the Romans and for the needs of the people throughout the city, whether they are part of the church community or not. And it astonished the world around them, and it gave credible witness to the message that they were proclaiming. There was a priority on the ministry of the message going forward, but the way that they lived and the way that they served and the way that they cared for one another and the others around them provided a witness for the reality of the power of the message that they proclaimed. And this is what they became known for, but this whole idea of balancing the ministry of God's word and the priority of the, the message going forward and the meeting of needs and the caring for one another got bifurcated probably about 100, 125 years ago. 
And the way it's most commonly explained today in, in really broad, sweeping terms is that about 100, 125 years ago, what will be considered now probably the liberal end of the church that has kind of set the word of God and the priority of the word of God and the message of the gospel and set it down as a side and, and has elevated to a sense of priority the meeting of needs of other people and, and justice in the social sphere and, and caring for the needs of the world around them has been elevated. On the other side, you've got this conservative church, let's call it that, that has continued to place an emphasis and a priority on the word of God and the centrality of the word of God and the inerrancy of the word of God and the message of the gospel while all along ignoring the needs of the world around them ignoring even the needs of the people amongst them, but just bent on making sure that this word and this message remain central, praise God, but they neglected to actually love people. And there's a whole other image of the church that has loved people to no end, but had nothing substantial to offer them anymore. They had set the message of the gospel aside, and it simply said that message was loving people and meeting their needs. And this bifurcated, and this is what you've got trying to balance. And right now, if we're really honest, both sides are probably suspicious of the other one still. I mean, the conservative church and the liberal church, they both have suspicions about the other one. And as we look at this in this text, this very story gives reason to have those suspicions. Because it's very possible for churches and church leaders or pastors in particular to actually lose their focus. I was thinking about this this week. I, I went back with some stats that someone had sent me. Had sent me um, and I, I don't know how exact they are because I don't know how you actually measure these things. But they said in the, in the, kind of in the last 10 years, on average, some 15,000 pastors quit the ministry every single year. And ultimately, it, it's because, you know, let's take moral failure out of it. Ultimately, I think it's, it's because they're not encouraged or equipped or allowed, really, to do the very thing that God has called them to do. I don't feel like in, in, the, in this particular country, let's just say, that pastors are allowed to give their attention to the very thing that God has called them to do. Today in the church, pastors are expected to run sometimes small, sometimes very large companies and organizations. They're expected to be able to build those, manage those, direct those, be experts in counseling and pastoral care, and then study and, and preach as a, a scholar and a theologian and what we've produced in the last generation and now second generation is a whole group of pastors who are jacks of all trades and masters of nothing. And what I think it has produced, I know in my own life, but in the churches that I work with and when I survey the landscape of, of this country, is it's produced a famine amongst God's people of God's word because they have not been equipped, allowed, or encouraged to do the very thing that God has called them to do. It is very easy for churches and pastors to lose focus. And this is what we see as a challenge here in Acts chapter 6, they could have easily said, wow, the people are not going to take this well. Let's just figure out a way to get it all done. We, we can do it. We're smart men. We'll stay up late. We'll, we'll study then and, and we'll pray then, but we don't want them to think we don't care. We don't want them to think we don't want to see their needs met. No, there, there was a balance that not only these leaders, but this church, because what the leaders said pleased all of them, but they were able to achieve because of their understanding ultimately of the gospel. And the apostles saw this challenge, and they saw this distraction, and they, they saw this temptation, and, and they were able to guard themselves against it. Now, they needed to assume their primary calling. They needed to assume the thing that God had set them apart to do. And far from doing the thing they knew would bring them the most affection from the people, they chose the thing that God had called them to do that had gotten them persecuted already. The very thing that would in years to come get each one of them killed. 
That's what they knew to be primary. They knew the people would have loved them. They knew the people would have, been, would have adored them if they'd only cared for their, their needs. But they understood what was at stake. They understood the priority. Yet at the same time, they didn't ignore the needs and they didn't ignore the church community. They didn't just say, this one thing has to be done. The rest be damned. Go figure it out, people. We're going to set ourselves aside in the closet and we're going to pray and we're going to study and we're going to come out and we're going to preach and you better listen. If you get hungry, figure out a way to get yourself some food. They weren't ignoring the community. They weren't ignoring the needs. They weren't ignoring in particular these widows who had been cut off from the provisions that had come from the synagogue because they had been transformed by the message of the gospel. They were saying that we have to care for the widows. We have to care for the orphans. We have to care for the community. We have to meet the needs. They saw this as a necessity. So they delegated the responsibility to men full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. The word and deeds, the priority of the message and the proclamation of the message and the meeting of needs and the witness of that message in the life of the people, they weren't at odds here. And they shouldn't be at odds in this church. And I want to say this because if we were to ever default or ever to be accused of falling on one side of that spectrum more than the other, it would be on the side of the, the ministry of the word, that the gospel is central, that we put our efforts into proclaiming and, and teaching and preaching and, and applying the gospel and making sure that the message of God and the word of God finds its way into and above all things that we do. But I want you to see that the, the ministry of the word and the ministry of meeting needs and caring for people are not at odds even in this church. In fact, the very message that we proclaim and the very thing that we hold as such a sweet and dear priority demands, demands in the message itself that we not neglect the ministry of meeting people's needs. The very message itself demands that we see love spring out amongst this community, that we see the needs amongst one another met and cared for, and that we see the needs of the world around us met and cared for. It's inherent in the very message that we hold up as a priority. This is what those conservative churches today tend to miss. They tend to minimize the, the gospel. I love this. Ian Dugan said this. The gospel is the news of God's love that provides for the needs of those who have nothing those who can't provide what they need for themselves, most profoundly and specifically, a deep and abiding spiritual poverty. This poverty God meets by sending his own son who did not merely meet spiritual needs, but was a man who was strong in word and deed, who healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, and fed the hungry. And this God didn't rescue us from a safe distance, but he came near, and he taught us to love our neighbor by loving us himself. The gospel always goes hand in hand with meeting needs, meeting the needs of others. Because we are called not just to fix problems, but to love others. And that involves a particular type of relationship. Inherent in the very message of the gospel, of a merciful God who came to meet the deepest spiritual need that we had, the poverty we found ourselves in. Inherent in that message is the call to love and serve and meet the needs of others. We need to see, in some sense, how this challenges our hearts because if you're like me, um, we naturally have, have very little interest in the practical needs of other people. If you're honest, in your own self-absorption, you have very little interest when you think about your day and what occupies your mind and the practical needs of, of other people. And we don't love people, we don't, we don't love people as we should because we're so consumed with our own burdens. 
even their expression of their own burden becomes an opportunity for us to express ours. We're looking for doors in our acts of empathy to express our need for their concern. And we get so consumed by our own burdens and our own lives that we fail to love people, even people amongst our own community, the way that we should. And, and what we see in Acts 6 is that this lack of love, of tangible love, is out of step with the message of the gospel. It's out of step with the fruit of the gospel. Its roots are going deep into the lives of our hearts. And we need to be praying as a people, as a church, specifically for the works that God is calling us to, the people around us that God has put us near, the ways that God is directing us and moving us to tangibly love and serve the people that he has put around us. Some people will tell us. Some will let us know what they need. Some people will let us know the burdens they have. Other people won't. And for those of you who are like me, and you struggle with this, and you wouldn't say you're naturally characterized by an awareness of the burdens around you. You fall, let's say, I don't know, this is, it's not a clean stroke, but you fall, let's say, on that word-centered of those two dichotomies. If you're like me, you'll need to pray, and you'll need to ask God to give you a compassion that reflects His. You'll have to ask God to give you a heart of compassion that sees the needs, that sees the burdens, that sees the places of, of struggle. You have to ask Him to give, him a, give you a heart that reflects His and eyes to see those things. But yet some of you who take the world on your shoulders, those of you, let's say, who fall more in that deed side of the spectrum and you're bent maybe to a bit of a savior complex, you like to wear that cape on your back and swoop in and feel like you can fix your way out of every person's problem, you might need to pray for some discernment. You might need to pray and ask God where, where and in what situations might he be directly calling you to involve yourself in and, and serve in and what places he may not be because you can't wear that cape. You're not Jesus. So we need to pray specifically for the things as a people that God is calling us to do, but particularly, you need to pray. You need to pray for hearts that reflect his compassion and eyes to see what's around you, and some you need to pray that God gives you some discernment. You know, that, that, that's the big thing that you see bearing fruit here in this balance was this ability to, to balance this ministry of the word and this ministry of the deed, but going hand in hand with that balancing of the word and the deed came a balancing of a trust and, and really a, a dependence upon the, the power of God's spirit and yet of their skill. You see a balance of the spirit's work and the work of the people. You see the spirit of God moving through the lives of God's people and people coming to know the, the, the grace of God through the gospel and numbers being added, but yet when problems arise, you see God calling his people to set aside those who were filled with his spirit, but yet had a wisdom, had a particular skill. And, you know, and if we're honest, we tend to fall on one or two sides of the spectrum as well. Some of us are bent by experience. If you've come through the church at all, uh, you're bent to ask God and expect God to rearrange the stars supernaturally to confirm for you whatever it is, the decision, whatever the decision is that you're trying to make. That God would get the song to play just right and get the lighting to fall just the right way, 
And that person across the table from you would say just the right word and you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was the one that God had given to you because he was going to arrange all of these things. And you pray day after day for God to powerfully and supernaturally intervene in the lives of the people you love and the world around you. They would come to know him and praise God for that while all along ignoring the often patient and tedious work of actually having conversations with them, actually talking to them about Jesus, talking to them about their life. There are some who are so bent on expecting and anticipating the supernatural work of God to do everything that we ignore the ordinary means of life that God empowers by his spirit, the ordinary means of grace. But there are others, if we're honest, that think that we can organize our way out of everything. Every problem that arises, we can figure out a solution to it, and we don't deny the Holy Spirit. I mean, we would never say the Holy Spirit isn't real. We would acknowledge that he's the third member of the Godhead, but yet we don't expect him to do anything. Like, we don't expect anything from him. We acknowledge his existence, but we don't expect him to actually move, and the reality of it is God doesn't exist in a box. I mean, we serve a very powerful and ferocious God who is yet good. And this church displayed balance not only in their capacity to manage the ministry of the word and the ministry of deeds because of their understanding of the gospel, but they were able to wed and balance the expectation of the Spirit's work among them and power among them, yet the responsibility that they had having been gifted by God with particular skills to see things done. It was the supernatural and the ordinary. And when this happens, the ministry of the word is enhanced. When balance is found between the expectation of God's spirit to move mightily and God to move through the ordinary means of the gifts that he's given his people, the ministry of the word increases. Here in Acts 6, the skillful and wise service of the seven empowered the 12 to do what God had called them to do in a way that continued the effectiveness that had marked them already. The ministry of the word was enhanced by the balance between the spirit moving in God's people using the skills that he has given them. Unbelievable balance that they had managed. And and the last thing, and this is how we're going to close, and this third thing is one that um, I don't know that I had ever noticed as well. This was a a good passage for me uh, this year. The third thing that was able to be produced in the life of this people, along with a balance that was wed to the unity and the generosity and the power and the obedience and the joy. The third thing here in this text was a desire to serve other people and not be served. They had decided that it was better for them to serve, all of them, and not simply show up or be part of the community to be served. A a, a heart of a servant was being displayed here. It's harder to see in the text in, in English, so I'll go fast so you can see it because I want us to catch this as we, as we wrap this thing up. This text is famous in the church for, being, for teaching about service, about what the church calls deacons because there's a word that's repeated three times in just these seven verses that has a, a root called diakoneo, which means service. In, in verse one, when it talks about the distribution of the meals, that, that word distribution is that word diakoneo. It means service. And then in verse two, when it when it talks about the serving of the tables or the waiting on tables, that, that waiting on tables or that word serving is this same word diakoneo. And so the church has said, look, they needed to serve the people in this tangible way, so they set these seven apart. Those are deacons. The deacons serve. 
But what we often fail to miss in this text and later on in the rest of the New Testament is that in verse 4, when the apostles say that we won't neglect the ministry of the word, that word ministry is diakoneo too. They had seen their responsibility and calling by God to this church as one of service. And this service from the entire congregation, from the apostles who were the elders to those who were set apart, they were set apart to lead the people in this service. Everyone in the congregation understood that they were all servants. They understood that serving was not just one person's job or a separate group of people's jobs. They understood that as a response to what God had done for them through Jesus, they too were servants. And in the rest of the New Testament, you'll see this word used over and over and over again of all of God's people being servants of the ministry of the word. Ephesians 4, Paul actually says that. All of us as Christians, diakoneo, we are servants. We are in the service of the ministry of the word. So they understood that they were all servants. They recognized that their service took different shapes and differing areas of strength, but they all had the willingness to serve. And in this, they overlooked personal preferences and personal desires and gave themselves to the serving of the ministry of the word and the serving of the meeting of the needs. And you see that played out in verse, in verse 6, I think it is, um, when, or it's verse 5, when they choose the seven who are going to be the ones who would lead this particular ministry, all the guys they chose had Greek names. The full number of the congregation was there, the Hebrews and the Greeks, those who were offended and those who were in their minds doing the offense. And all of them, including the Hebrews, said, you know what? These are men who are full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. Let's set them aside. They didn't demand equal representation. They didn't demand that it be done in a way that continued to meet the needs of their widows the way they had been done. They set their personal desires and personal preferences aside for the sake of serving the larger body. And these seven led the rest of the congregation in meeting the needs and serving the needs of the community. Everyone began to see that it was better in whatever way that they were given by God and set apart by God to serve rather than coming together and demand to be served in a particular way that met the desires that they had. And this only comes, it's only born as the gospel begins to take deeper root into our hearts. As the roots go deeper into our souls, this is part of the fruit that begins to be produced. Let me read you this as we wrap up and pray. Philippians chapter 2. It should come up on the screen. It's just not in my notes. This is sheer fruit of the gospel roots going deep into the soil of our hearts. We can't produce it. I can't guilt you into it. I can't manipulate it. I can't say anything to produce it in your life. It's something only an understanding and deepening treasuring of the gospel does. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy of being in the same mind by having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This was the circumstance they were facing then, wasn't it? Things seemingly done out of rivalry or conceit. Jealousy and, and envy rising up. But when they came together, when they came together, the real fruit began to rise. And they began to see because of what God has done for them in Jesus, it was better for them to set their personal desires and personal preferences aside 
and give themselves to serving one another. It's only something born from a deepening understanding of the gospel. And this is what Paul goes on to say. Have this mind among yourselves, verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, here's how you do things, not out of envy and rivalry and conceit. Here's how the fruit of that type of humility and service is born in your life, and you're no longer marked by that kind of jealousy and envy. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as the thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, in that service and in that humility and in that sacrifice, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus could have stayed in eternity, in eternity forever. He could have not chosen to come and take on the form of man, the form of a servant. He could have chosen not to be concerned with sinners like me and my deep spiritual needs and the poverty of my soul and the poverty of my spirit. And he could have sentenced me to a very well-deserved eternity apart from him that I earned, that I deserved, but he didn't. He left the eternal presence of the Godhead and he took on the form of man, humbling himself, taking on the form of a servant, Paul said. And he lived the life that I was created to live. And he died on the cross for my sin, paying the price for that poverty and that life that I've lived and said. And he exhausted the wrath of God in my place. He did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. He faced a world of physical need, physical depravity, and physical poverty. An overwhelming need. And he specifically met some comprehensively met the most important of all of them. In that service, in that sacrifice, he paid the debt for my cold, my selfish, my arrogant, and my very unconcerned heart. So that his life of unequaled compassion, unequaled devotion, and unequal worship could be mine. And I could stand in the presence of God the Father for all eternity with confidence and boldness. And as we treasure the good news of what he has done in our place, as we treasure the riches of that message we call the gospel, in particular, God's love expressed towards those who are in the greatest of need, as we treasure that more deeply, it will begin to warm our heart. It will begin to warm your soul and you will begin to see others in a way that will compel you to move forward in love and in service towards them. That's the only way that it begins to happen is as the gospel begins to produce this in our hearts. You see, one of my favorite pastors, he said this and then we'll pray. The gospel doesn't call you to die for your neighbor but it calls you to the harder task of actually serving them, of living day after day in a way that you can know them and seek to serve them in the ways that reflect the way that God has cared for you and loved you. And as we grow in our capacity to serve others, the gospel will be more effectively preached in this community and in the communities around this city, and people will be added to the church, even the most resistant of people like there were here, even the priests there were added to the number 
became obedient to the faith. When people see and hear the message of the gospel, God is glorified and people are transformed. And that's what we're after. May, may God make us a church. <laughs> may God make us a church where this is a reality and where the roots of the gospel dig deep into our soul. May God make us uh, his people. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that even as inadequately as people like me do it, it still searches our hearts and lays waste to our motivations. And Lord, I ask that your word will dig deeper and deeper into our hearts and souls and the gospel roots will go deeper and deeper into our hearts. And I pray that lives individually here and lives together corporately here will reflect the fruit of that gospel that will be a people of unique fellowship and unity and generosity and joy and effectiveness and obedience and a people of unique balance that reflect your priorities of your message and the caring of other people and will be a people marked by a desire to serve and set aside in sensitive of entitlement and practice. That your gospel may go forward and more be added to the church. We ask this, Lord, for your name's sake. That people, that in generations to come and eternity looks back, we could say that we were a part of seeing the city of Richmond flourish through the teaching of the gospel. Amen.